Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. If you want to get into an argument with someone at a cocktail party or even on the line at the grocery store, just start talking about immigration. This issue is on the lips of millions of Americans. And we are indeed a nation of immigrants, and the history of immigration in the United States is very much like a roller coaster. It's filled with ups and downs and hairpin turns, and sometimes it's welcoming, and sometimes it's not. And everyone has an opinion about immigration, and all of them are important to hear and to respect. So I started to search for someone who could shed true light on the subject, and here she is. Susan Cohen has made it her life's work to know everything there is to know about immigration. In fact, she is an internationally recognized expert on the topic. Susan is the founder and the chair of the immigration practice at Mintz, one of the United States' most prestigious law firms. But wait, because there's more. She's also an accomplished songwriter and the founder of White Dove Projects, where she uses music and video to tell the stories of refugees. Susan Cohen, welcome to the story behind her success. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I want our listeners to get to know you quickly. So we have this little thing called Candio's Lightning Round. These are five questions, short answers, whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. All right. If you could live any place in the world, where would that be? You mean other than this great country? Yes. Costa Rica. What characteristics do you value the most in a friend? Loyalty. The historical figure you admire most? Benjamin Franklin. Winter, summer, spring, or fall is your favorite season? Summer. Do you have a favorite t-shirt? Wait for it. And if so, does it say anything on it? I do. A t-shirt that says, sad songs make me happy. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much for playing Candio's Lightning Round. I feel like we know a little bit more about you now. You attended Brandeis University as an undergrad, and it was there that you had an awakening to social justice, to civil rights issues. Take me back to that time in your life. It was the late 70s, and there were a lot of things happening in the world. I uh, learned a lot about many types of oppression that were happening in South Africa and in the cotton mills in the south of this country with uh, the union workers and things like that. I learned about that from my fellow students and got involved and started to do some things to try to raise awareness about those issues. Like what? Like marching, like engaging in conversations with the media, with the administration of the school, and writing articles about things like that were happening around us. There are lots of lawyers in your family. Was it assumed that you would become one? I know your brother's a lawyer as well. Yeah, my grandfather, my uncle, my brother, many of my cousins, although I never really thought I would be a lawyer when I went to college. At one moment, that light bulb did go on, and I thought, maybe I can be a lawyer and do a good job with it, and we'll see. Where did you go to law school? I went to the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law in New York City, which is part of Yeshiva University, named after a Supreme Court justice. You got your start as a first-year associate at Mintz. And I'm going to guess that that was a huge day in your life when you walked in the door to this big firm and you kind of had to make your own mark there. Do you remember that day? I was very thrilled because that was the firm I wanted to work at. 
It was my dream to work at Mintz, and I couldn't believe it when I actually got that offer. I was over the moon. So they put you in the corporate department, right? Yeah. It's not that you didn't like it. It's that it wasn't exciting enough maybe for you? Well, it wasn't my first choice. You know, when I went to law school, I had a dream that I was going to be the Perry Mason of my day. And corporate law wasn't something I really thought about doing, but it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me. In fact, something happened while you were in that corporate department. Tell us the story. It was an immigration case that you got a chance to work on. That's right. I was just minding my business, and one day I got a call from one of the senior associates saying, hey, we have this immigration case, and we realize, you know, we remember you said you'd done some immigration work before law school as a paralegal, and would you like to work on it? I said, absolutely. So I learned all about the case. It was a wonderful Japanese potter who was an artist in residence at Harvard University, had come with his family on a student visa, like a scholar, he decided he wanted to stay in the country and not go back to Japan. He carried on this type of pottery. He was like the sixth or seventh generation in his family history to do the same type of pottery. So learning about everything he did in order to make the case to the government that he had exceptional ability as an artist and looking at all the catalogs from the museums, and getting to put all that together and weave a narrative about how his skills were so incredible that we should roll out the red carpet for him and give him a green card with his family was really, really fun to do and very gratifying to do. After it got approved, I thought about all the different types of things I was doing, and that case really stood out for me as something that was just, it affected me, you know, it moved me personally, and I was happy to help that family directly. And and we had a party to celebrate, and that was really fun. Isn't it interesting that that kind of law is all about stories of people's lives, right? That's really what it's about. Yeah. Immigration law is about getting to know a person and his or her family in a very intimate way, weaving their narrative for the government to understand why they should be entitled to an immigration benefit in this country. So you decide, this really floats my boat, and you like it a lot. And you end up having to go to one of the senior partners and saying, I, I want to do this, mm -hmm. and I need you to give me a law library with immigration books and send me to some conferences. That yeah. takes chutzpah. It's the word. <laughs> yeah. I was a second rising third year associate at Mintz, and we didn't have an immigration law department. I'd started doing a little bit of that work, and I thought, well, look at all the clients our firm has. We represent all these companies, and there are people working at these companies from other countries, and they need an immigration lawyer, but we don't do that kind of work here. And I saw an opportunity, but I was very young, so I did have to propose it, and I was quite enthusiastic, quite passionate about the idea, but I actually never believed that they'd go for it. <laughs> they did. So did you put it together just like a business plan? Exactly, like a one-pager. I said, you know, I think that we could do something with this. I look around, we have all these other departments. Maybe someday we could have an immigration department if we could bring the business into the firm. That was way back in the 80s, right, when you did this? It was. And all these years later, you're the chair now of the yeah. immigration practice at Mintz. How many lawyers do you have there? We have about 10, 11 lawyers. We have about 40 people in our department. How does that feel for you, Susan? It's gratifying. It's a wonderful thing that we're able to serve so many clients and that we have a wonderful team together now. That's one thing that I took away from that experience is the beauty of working with other people and, and working together and achieving results together. 
ups and downs together, it's more satisfying when you work as a team. Explain what the bulk of your work is like. I know you do some pro bono work, and we're going to talk about that. But in terms of corporate immigration, explain what that is. It's very different today than it was a few years ago, because things have changed since the new administration came into power. Day-to-day, we are mostly representing companies and employers of every type or, you know, one type or another. They could be retail, they could be manufacturing, sports teams, all kinds of things, a lot of universities and hospitals. So our day-to-day work is getting work visas and green cards for the employees of employers throughout the United States. I was doing some research on the history of immigration for this episode, and it's not without drama. I guess that's a good word to use. From the very beginning, as a country, we have imposed many restrictions on entry into the United States. Give me your opinion on this. As you look back on the history of immigration, we're all immigrants. We all came from somewhere. And there were times in the history of our country when we were welcomed here and sometimes when we weren't. It's so true. It's up and down over the course of history. What I have seen in my career is that the immigration policy tends to follow certain other factors, such as geopolitics, what's going on in the world. Like after 9-11, many things changed in our immigration system and closely tracks how well our economy is doing. So those two things really influence immigration policy. The Trump administration has made it a priority to stop illegal immigration, to deport undocumented people. We see midnight raids. We see children separated from their parents. Give me your view on this. My personal opinion is that this type of policy is really devastating. I don't think it's who we should be as a country. There are ways to control immigration. I don't believe in unlimited immigration. I believe the law should be followed. I'm a lawyer. The law is not being followed in many cases and under current policy now in the Trump administration. And so we need lawyers to bring the administration to account when they violate the law to make sure that the law is respected. They're trying to change the law without actually having Congress change it. And that is not allowed. There's some things that the government can do that they can do without passing new laws. But there are many ways in which the government is acting in unconstitutional ways, and we have to hold the government to account when that happens. You know, I'm just looking through my papers here on the desk, and there was a quote that I found with you saying, I'm not at all afraid to sue the government when they're outside the bounds of the law. We are a country of laws. We should be a country of laws. No one should be above the law, whether it's a senator or a congressperson or even the president of the United States. When the law is broken, I am not afraid to step up. You are telling the stories of people seeking asylum through song. You've got something called your White Dove Project, which is very close to your heart. Tell us all about it. This all happened for me in the early part of 2017 after President Trump had instituted the travel ban. There were so many people who all of a sudden couldn't come to this country, many of them who previously had the right to come, all of a sudden couldn't come. Families were separated again as a result of that, and I was very involved in trying to turn that situation around along with many other wonderful lawyers and other people helping and volunteering at airports and things like that. I woke up one day with the idea for a song, 
it just came to me. The melody came first, and then the words started to come to me. And I had this image of a family from Syria at a refugee camp telling their story to an American aid worker. It just came to me in almost in a dreamlike way. In many ways, I felt like a vehicle for this music to come through me. I wanted to tell the story about how people, you know, when they're refugees or they're, they're fleeing terrible situations in their home countries and they come to the United States, they come because they, they have to. They're desperate. They're looking for some place to be safe. So I wanted to tell the story of a family who, if things had been different, would never have wanted to leave their beautiful homeland because that's really the case most of the time. People don't want to flee their homelands. They have to flee for their lives, whether it's war or terror, or whatever is happening. I was very, very lucky to find some wonderful people to help me at the Berklee College of Music to really turn it into a, a production that I could turn into a video. I'm hearing what you're explaining to me, and I see the look on your face when you talk about this work. Yeah. The song is Beyond the Borders? Yes. How did it come together with the musicians? How do you translate what you want, the feel that you want, the experience that you want the audience to feel when you come together with musicians and you have to pour your passion into them? They said I was a conjurer For I drew my love to me One look and he had pledged to be Now I am a wanderer I do not want to be And I have lost my one true love And I have lost my land Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends, too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. I actually was so lucky because I met these wonderful musicians at the Berklee College of Music who were introduced to me through a couple of professors, including a wonderful songwriting professor there named Mark Simos, who helped me actually improve the texture of the song and the, the lyrics. And he really helped to make the song stand on its own as a vehicle for a video. He introduced me to all these different people, this young woman named Aaliyah, who was all of 22 years old and orchestrated music and played the oud, which is a Middle Eastern instrument, a beautiful instrument. And she had this affinity for Middle Eastern music. I told her what I was looking for in terms of what I wanted the sound and feel of the song to be. And I said, picture mating He Lives in You from The Lion King with We Are the World. I said, listen to both of those things and see if you can help me come up with an orchestration that will be big enough to capture people's hearts. And she was just 22 years old, and she did an incredible job of that. 
they introduced me to the musicians, many from the Middle East who are students at Berkeley. There was a young woman there named Nano Reis from Syria, who was the very first woman from Syria ever to be admitted to the Berkeley College of Music. She was studying singing. She's a vocalist. She always sang in the shower back in Syria. She was working as an architect, and then she realized that her true love was singing. And she applied to Berkeley. Her family didn't even know, and she got in, and she amazingly made it from Syria to Boston. I heard about her, and I said, I can't believe that there's a Syrian woman studying vocals at Berkeley. I would love to meet her. That same day, it turns out she heard about the song, and she said to other people at Berkeley, I need to meet this woman, Susan, because I want to learn about this song. So it was like meant to be. You know, I always love to ask singers what it feels like to hear themselves singing on the radio. But I love to ask songwriters, what does it feel like to hear someone sing your song? Oh, it's just such a wonderful feeling to be able to get it into the world. I can sing, but not like these people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just great to hear it come to life with these incredibly talented singers. You followed up Beyond the Borders with another recent music video, which is called Looking for the Angels. And this is also based on your original song. Tell us about that. It was one of those situations where I've been thinking so much about the situation that we have in the world with the Central American migrants and what they're fleeing from. I wanted to try to find a vehicle to just show people that people who are fleeing up through Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Many of them don't want to leave either, but their lives are in real danger. There may be some economic migrants coming from that area of the world, but many of the people are actually fleeing for their lives. I'm very aware of that because I work with an organization that does political asylum work here in Boston called PAIR, the Political Asylum Immigration Representation Project. So we help asylum seekers who have made it to the greater Boston area to find pro bono lawyers to help them with their asylum cases. So I've become pretty familiar with why people are fleeing. What do they tell you? Well, there's a tremendous amount of gang violence in those countries. There's corruption like you wouldn't believe in these countries where when you turn to law enforcement or the courts, they're actually oftentimes in bed with the powers that are involved in in drug dealing or criminal elements. So they're not always very honest, and they're not reliable to help you and protect you when someone is threatening you. The gang violence is so bad in these three countries, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, that I wanted to be able to show what happens when someone is trying to resist the gang, which happens a lot with these really well-brought-up young people who uh, live in very close-knit families, oftentimes with their grandparents. So this is a song about a grandma and her grandson, and he's telling his grandma that he has to say goodbye because he has resisted joining the gangs, and now he has a, a mark on his back. And if he doesn't leave, they will shoot him. There's about a murder an hour in these countries, and it's very, very real. So I just wanted to show what a family situation is like through the song where this boy has to leave his beloved grandmother. Mi nieto, mi nieto Life is hard, life is a fight 
find the faces of the angels. They will light your darkest nights. Mi nieto, ten cuidado. Let la Virgen guide your way. You also speak Spanish fluently, and I'm going to guess that that's come in handy, particularly around your pro bono work, too. Sometimes it comes in very handy, yeah. And I, I was down at the border not that long ago speaking with people who are fleeing and hearing their stories, and if I didn't speak Spanish, I wouldn't be able to do that. You know, going to the border and hearing the stories, when you leave, are you changed forever? Yes. I spend a lot of time thinking about the phrase there, but for the grace of God, go I. This could be anybody's story. I think it's so important to value what we have, but also to realize how easily things change. My husband is a first-generation immigrant. His family fled Germany in 1938. Many of his relatives were murdered in the Holocaust, and if his dad hadn't gotten out, I never would have met my husband, you know, but he did lose a lot of people. So many people are privileged to have escaped situations, and we, we take a lot for granted, and I think it's really important to realize that these stories could be our stories. Your first immigration case, that Japanese potter, 1986, that case is now bound in a book on a bookshelf. Every once in a while, you take it out and dust it off and take a look at it. What do you learn when you look at that case again? What do you learn about yourself? It's true. I, I have it on a shelf in my office. I actually had it in my hand about a month ago. It reinforces for me that you should try to remember that life is about helping other people. I read an article recently a lot of articles about you, my lady, that told the story about how you fell off a horse, but you still came to work, all beaten up and limping around. What is your work ethic? I'm fairly determined, I would say. I have a very high threshold for pain. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, who were your early role models, and what did they teach you? It might sound like a bit of a cliche, but actually, my mother was my biggest role model. She's gone now about five years. When I was growing up, I had three older siblings, and I came along, and I think I was a bit of a surprise, and she was just delighted to have me in, in her life. And then my dad left us, and my mom raised us. She had been through so much herself. She had been orphaned. She had a very hard life, but she had such a positive attitude about life. And she always told me and my siblings that we could do anything we wanted to do. And that it was also really, really important to try to spend your time in one way or another trying to help other people. She was a social worker and she helped families and children. She modeled it. She really believed in the importance and the value of giving back to other people. And so I got to witness that growing up. She would come home at the dinner table and tell stories about these families and these kids that come from broken homes and how she was trying to help them. And, and that resonated with me. And she believed in democracy. And she worked at the League of Women Voters. She manned the polls. And 
She always taught us society doesn't just happen. We have to participate in it. You shouldn't complain about somebody not doing something. If you want something done, you should try to do it yourself. And speaking of that, when an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? The way it's worked the best for me is if I can just take a little time to calm down first and then try to see it maybe as an opportunity instead of an obstacle. We all have strengths and weaknesses. As an attorney, what is your greatest strength? I care very, very deeply about my clients. I really get invested. That might be my weakness as well. (laughs) Fifty years from now, a young law student is studying immigration law, and she comes upon your life's work. Your influence or your research around immigration laws in this country changes that you've been part of trying to make as well. What do you hope she learns from your example? Keep fighting. Never give up. And know that she will also hopefully be influencing other people to do the same. Links in a chain. It's very important. At this point in your career, has there ever been someone who's given you a great piece of advice, piece of wisdom that you could pass along to our listeners today? One pearl of wisdom that I wish I paid more attention to more often, but when I do, I always benefit is that the perfect can be the enemy of the good. It's also good to get home to your family instead of just to send one more email to another client. What do you wish you knew when you first got started? I wish I had known how it's so much more satisfying to build something with a group of people than to be on your own doing it. I started out, I was on loan trying to build a practice. And I'm just so grateful to be surrounded by so many wonderful people who are making things better together as a group and where we work. So right now, this deep in your career, what does success mean to you? It means making a difference every day, even if it's just a little one. And waking up and hopefully doing something positive for somebody else before the end of the day. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest today on the story behind her success. Susan Cohen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, She'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, candyoterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?